Good morning. I'm so glad to see you this morning. We're starting our question and answer service today. So I appreciate the questions everyone has sent me so far. Uh, those of you who have submitted questions have done a really good job with the questions you've sent. They're important questions. They're good for this setting. And third, they're concise. I meant to add that as a ground rule. If I have to scroll to read your question, it's too long. But I haven't had to do that yet. So great job. And I'm really excited to get into our uh, new way of approaching this. Uh, the intention of this is to hit some questions and topics that may not be covered in a sermon, or at least haven't been done in a sermon in a while. Um, maybe you've been studying in the Bible with a friend, and they asked you a question that just hit you sideways. You weren't sure exactly what to do and what to say. That's okay. That happens. It happens to people who know a lot about the Bible. Uh, you can send in questions here for those kinds of things. Uh, maybe there's a specific text that you've just read over and over again that you don't quite understand. So this is a good spot to send those kinds of questions in. Maybe there's a cultural issue that you have uh, wrestled with and you don't know what the Bible tells you to do, how to think about something specific you see in our world today. You can send those kinds of questions in. Uh, my hope is to do this every couple months or so uh, to cover these kinds of questions that will help us to uh, grab those things at the edge of our minds that have been really bothering us and help us to see uh, what the Bible says to the best of our ability uh, for those things. So you can submit those questions to me at any time uh, beyond the ones we'll cover today. Uh, likely April will be our next one. I do want to say that on matters of judgment, I'm going to do my best to stay neutral. I don't want to become the standard for anything of what people have asked. I just want us to see the Bible better and for us to make our own judgments on matters of judgment. So that, that's something I just want to say up front. That's my intention. If I come across biased, I'm sorry. It's not my intention. It's just I'm biased on some things. Uh, so let's get started with our questions. Uh, we have three questions we're going to cover today. I received a few others, but we, uh, we won't have time to go through every question. And so we'll start off with uh, our first one here. And that is, pornography and addictions are silently killing Christian relationships. What tools are available to help men and women in churches overcome these issues? I want to say I, I will do my best to leave the questions as written by whoever sends them in, just so they carry the original intent, unless they need to be shortened or something like that. So that happened with this. This is a, a question that is sent in originally, um, and it is an important question. Because pornography is certainly an issue in our world today. And it's impacting lots and lots of people in our church and in churches everywhere, in the world everywhere. And I may have a, a small issue with this question because it may not even be a silent killer anymore. It's getting to be where it's a louder and louder killer of our relationships and has impacted so many people. Uh, there's lots of statistics we could get into on this uh, to prove this, but we're not going to take the time to do that. If you want to do your own research on uh, what pornography is doing to our world, to marriages, to young people, uh, you can do that. But I would just want to say it's a significant problem, and Christians are not immune to it. Um, this is not a problem for just one demographic either. Sometimes we hear this word and we assume, okay, this is a young man's issue, you know, something that they deal with. The numbers are getting more and more so where there are older people struggling with it and more and more women. Men and women are almost equal in the numbers who have filled out surveys recently that have uh, talked about being addicted to pornography. Um, so it's something that is pervasive. It's everywhere and it is a struggle. So 
it's a definitely an issue. And we need to start by saying pornography is a sin. It's not what God intended for us to do with our sexuality. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. It's generally agreed that pornography lands somewhere in one of those three words. It is one of those things that is opposite of what it means to look like God, to have His Spirit live in us. It is something that needs to be out of us and something that we need to be very aware of as we are walking with God. And I think we get that. I think that most of us agree with that here, so I won't belabor that point too much. But we need to say it because our world doesn't get it. And I think increasingly so, our world doesn't get it. Uh, If you talk to people about pornography, I did a a persuasive speech in college why pornography was a blight on our uh, society. And um, it didn't go over as well as I thought. I thought this will be a home run. Everyone will agree about this because, you know, look at it. They're abusing women. It's all these bad things that we can, you know, look at. And they were champions of it. It's shocking to me. I don't understand it. But it's something we need to see as a problem and is sinful. Uh, it's normalized in our culture to the point people will even defend it. Uh, so we need to realize no matter what the world thinks, when we see sin, we see sin. It's something that is supposed to stay away from us, and we need to avoid it. Okay, so to the, the real question, what tools are available to help men and women in churches overcome these issues? Uh, the first thing I want to say is... Uh, set some barriers. Uh, there are some real principles here that we're going to look at, just three principles that will help us with any temptation, not just pornography. But I think this one we'll talk specifically with uh, pornography, and that is there are lots of apps and programs that you can install on your phones and on your computers that will stop you from being able to access illicit sites. I would recommend Uh, trying out a few of these apps and programs that block things, finding ones. Some are free. Some cost like $50 a year or something like that um, to uh, see which ones would work for you and your computer, your phone, to make sure that the things aren't going to be found by others or by yourself to make sure these things are being protected. I will just say that everyone should have something blocking these sites if possible. Uh, They're not too hard to find. You can just Google them and they will come up. If you need help with that, let me know and I'd be happy to help especially if you aren't the only one living in your home. If you have young ones living at home, they can very easily uh, find things and get into things that they shouldn't be getting into. And so those things need to be protected before they get to an age where you think they start thinking about it because they think about it earlier than we realize. The numbers are supporting that in our society, sadly. Um, So there are a few apps that uh, I'm familiar with that I've uh, just tested in preparation for this question. Uh, one app that I like particularly is called Covenant Eyes. It's an uh, app that you use alongside other people. Uh, you agree to, uh, you both give your email, and if you go to an illicit site, it sends an email to that other person telling them, hey, they did something they shouldn't have. Talk about a motivation to not you know, do things you shouldn't do. But it is a way for us to overcome the temptation of pornography by using the tools available to set barriers up where it's a lot harder to do what we shouldn't. So that's my first uh, answer, is set some barriers. If you set some barriers, it's much harder to get into it. But that uh, Covenant Eyes tool takes me to my next tool, and that is get some accountability. Accountability is something that is really hard for us. 
being vulnerable with another person, telling someone else that I struggle with a sin, is not our comfort zone. But we need to find someone that we trust. Let me repeat that. That we trust, that we can go to and talk to. I recommend daily checking in. How are you doing? How are you doing specifically with that temptation? Those conversations need to be happening. If you're really struggling with this, that's one of the best ways that we can use each other to help approach uh, this difficult temptation. Um, so if you can follow up with someone and they will help you fight this temptation, it'll support you, it'll help you. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The body of Christ is not meant to struggle alone. We're meant to help each other with these kinds of things. Uh, we're use the people around you, me or anyone else, someone close to you, because sin needs to be defeated. That's more important than our image that we think of ourselves or our pride sometimes that keeps us from sharing the things that we struggle with. And so that can go for any sin. If you have something that you need help with, ask for help. It's okay. All of us have sinned. I think we know that. But it's hard for us to tell people my specific sin. So uh, that is uh, another tool that we need to think about, reaching out to other people, asking for them to help us to be accountable. It doesn't just happen in temptation. We use other people for things like uh, diet and exercise. You know, people who help us, they, we go running on the same day, and we always text each other, how far we go? We, we're all being accountable to each other right now for our daily Bible reading to uh, help each other continue to read our Bible daily. This is just another way we can do that. All right, so tool number three, we need to replace it with something good. And I think this might be one of the most important ones because so often when you get sin out of your life, there is a void there in your heart. Your heart has been filled with that sin and has been taken over and temptation and uh, that desire. And so we need to replace it with something good. We saw one way we could replace it right there in James chapter 5, and that's prayer. Prayer is our first line of defense that we need to be praying about this all the way through, throughout all of these, so we can ask God for His help as we go through and uh, work through our temptations. And so um, I think about Matthew chapter 12 as we fill it with something good. The end of Matthew 12 is not about pornography. It's about disbelief, but the principle is the same. Uh, Jesus gives an image of a demon wandering after it is cast out of a person. And it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. If we're able to get a temptation out from among us, and we don't fill it, replace it with something good, we're going to find something worse to take its place. I think we buy that because we know temptation and sin don't stay at the same level. We typically get more intense. We amplify. We go farther than we should have gone. It, it just rejudges, right? It gets worse as the chapters go. We have this uh, challenge, therefore, to remove temptation and replace it with something good so that the uh, heart, the house where the demon was left has been filled with a good thing, and now the demon cannot return and have a great hold over someone. So, uh, 
David has said something like this, sin takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and then there's one more part that I don't remember. Costs you more than you want to pay. And I think that is really true, and I think it's really important that we just get out of sin's court. Put something else in our lives so that it replaces it. So, fill your heart with godliness. Uh, The first two are real obvious ones. Read your Bible every day. If you're reading your Bible every day, you are filling yourself with the words of God, with the will of God, and it will help you to remove temptation. It's much easier when you have a consistent, serious Bible reading. If you aren't reading your Bible, temptation can walk right in and grab a hold of your heart. Temptation can walk right in even if you are reading your Bible, but it has a little bit harder time. But reading your Bible will help. Second, pray. We said that before, but we need to keep relying on God uh, to get through temptation. Uh, If we can pray, not just for ourselves, but for each other, I think that would be helpful for us in that. And then third, I want to add, serve each other. Uh, I think that one thing that causes so many to struggle with this temptation in particular, and many others too, is idleness is dangerous. If you are not doing anything with your time, if you are sitting still and, you know, just remaining idle, temptation has a large target to hit. It has a easier target to hit. So we need to fill our time doing something with it. And I don't think we need to fill it doing just anything because we can fill it with all kinds of selfish activities. We need to fill it with something God-focused, and that is serving one another, looking for ways where we can help each other. What a better way to turn our life around. You know, I couldn't stop uh, sinning. I couldn't stop with this temptation. But then I started serving my brothers and sisters so much, I couldn't even fill my mind with that temptation anymore. That's what we need to be doing. Transformed by the, what? Renewal of our minds. That's what we're trying, our goal is uh, together. Okay, so that's our first question. If you need more specifics than that, uh, come talk to me. Uh, Ask if you need help, come talk to someone and they will help. This is a very defeatable sin. It just doesn't feel that way when you're in it. It's a defeatable sin because God is with us, and we can be here to help each other. So we just have to use the tools in front of us. Okay, that's question number one. Because of the nature of this, transitions are going to be on to the next question. So question number two is, is it okay for a Christian to listen to contemporary popular Christian music? Uh, So let me start out just by saying why this question is being asked. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we had a Bible conversation about biblical authority, And as an example, we talked about instrumental music in worship and how we walk through how the Bible doesn't quite authorize uh, instruments to be used in the worship of God after Jesus Christ, right? It was used in the temple. It's not used anymore. And so we, we saw that throughout. We believe that the scriptures don't authorize that. God cares about how he is worshiped. He has shown how particular he is about worship throughout all of scripture. So we're very careful at Castleberry to be, do exactly as the scriptures say when it comes to worship. And that means that we don't use instruments here. Uh, but other churches have different thoughts on that. There are churches in the world that do use instruments. They have different philosophy about instruments in worship and the authority of the scriptures. And so we believe that's wrong and that's a misuse of the scriptures. But let's just say instruments in and of themselves are not sinful. You know, I know many people play an instrument here, so I'm, I'm hearing a sigh of relief from a few people. Um, we can listen to music in our lives with no problem. We can play music in our lives with no problem. 
It's just a problem in worship because those instruments do not belong because God did not give us the authorization to put them there. But beyond that, in secular culture, there is, um, outside of churches, there, are, there is music that is made that is directed towards God or directed towards Jesus. So what do we do with that? The problem lies in how we define worship. Uh, it's a good question. It's really hard to draw this line. I'm just going to say right up front, this is a judgment call. You have to decide where your conscience lies and where your, um, you know, where you're comfortable doing this and not doing this. So ultimately, it's a judgment call because the difficulty lies in defining what worship is outside the assembly. If I'm in my car listening to Christian music, we'll use Christian music in quotes so you know what I mean. Am I worshiping in the car if I'm singing along? You know, that's kind of questions we need to wrestle with. Am I, you know, uh, authorized to do that according to the scriptures, or am I violating the same principle we have up here? So some of you may feel the answer is yes, I'm worshiping, and therefore they can't listen to Christian music with instruments because it violates their conscience. That's okay. Others may say the answer is no. They don't feel they're worshiping. They don't feel it is uh, anything that is outside of in, you know, violating Scripture and their conscience is not bothered. That's okay. We have to make that judgment for ourselves. But there are two things that we need to consider. Sorry, behind. We need to be considerate of each other. Because this is a judgment call, we need to think about how others are, are feeling in this kind of um, conversation. If, if I have no problem with instruments being played in a uh, contemporary popular Christian music, um, man, I, I'm aging myself by the way I'm saying it, by a Christian pop song, uh, I will, uh, and I play that around someone who does care, I'm not being loving towards them in the way that they are uh, concerned about this topic. I need to be very careful not to do that. Uh, so if someone's conscience is bothered by listening to this kind of music, you should not listen to it around them. Romans 14 is all about this kind of principle. Christians were struggling with what to do about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Some said you could do it, and some said you couldn't. What do you do then? Paul's answer is the people who can eat the meat need to consider those who can't. Don't do it around them. Stay away from it around them because it bothers their conscience. He says this, Romans 14, verse 9, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. I think that's a really important principle for us to think about. What music you listen to in your own time is not as important as the unity of the church. If the Christian music you listen to causes a divide between you and a brother or sister, that music needs to go. That's just plain and simple. That's what the, that's what the principle of Romans 14 teaches us. What you do in your own time when they're not around, it's your call. Secondly, we need to think about the wisdom of what we do. Because it's not just about what we do in the car. It's about what influences we let in. Think about this. If you're listening to Christian pop music in the car on the way to worship, or even just regularly, you need to think about the influence it's having on you or those around you. If you have kids in your car and they're listening to Christian pop music in the car and all the way into the parking lot where it's okay, and then they walk into the doors and listen to, you're not allowed to listen to instruments in here, could you see how that could be confusing? We need to be either very carefully teaching why that's different or just hold off until they're old enough to understand. 
to make sure that that kind of uh, muddying the waters doesn't impact their souls and their faith. That's just uh, something I think we need to be wise about. We need to worry about how a young person or a new Christian or how even ourselves are impacted by what we listen to in the world and what makes sure we don't bring it in here. Because my first concern is the worship of our God. If anything outside our building is creeping into our building, it needs to go. It needs to stay away because we need to use the scriptures to uh, motivate what we do in here, not what's on the radio. So I praise we use wisdom when we approach something like this. So to sum up what I said, um, if you feel okay listening to music, just be loving and be discerning with how you do it. If you don't feel okay with it, be loving towards those who do. That's really the answer that we can come to. The scriptures don't give us a, you have to do it this way beyond that. All right. So that's question number two. And then our third and final question this morning is, what does the Bible say about capital punishment? What a really important question. This is a sobering question. Uh, I don't think anyone is, um, you know, thinks about this lightly, you know, and thinks about this in a a way that, you know, is flippant. But it comes from a very important biblical motive, and that is life is precious, murder is wrong. But then people are put to death by governments, all the way back to the law of Moses, at least, probably before. So it's shocking for us. I mean, it's shocking when you open your pages and you get to Genesis chapter 4, and all of a sudden, Cain did what to Abel? You, people can do that to each other? That killing, that murder is something that we care about. And then we get to the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And as sin increases, death becomes a penalty that is enforced upon criminals. So it becomes very clear that this happens in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Uh, death is the penalty for many different social crimes and spiritual transgressions. But we can accept it a little more easily because that law was directly from God. Moses was up on the mountain speaking to God. God could direct it and God could tell Moses what to do. But it still happened. So we see the Old Testament seems to expect death as a penalty for many sins. So what about today? Um, capital punishment still happens. God doesn't speak to us directly like he did with Moses. He gives us his word. What do we do about it? I think there's a couple passages that help us wrap our heads around it. We're just going to look at one today. So if you want to look at Romans chapter 13, open up your Bibles. Romans 13 going the wrong direction. Romans is this way. We're just going to read verses 1 through 5. And uh, if you, the other passage you want to read, if you want to, is 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 is about our relationship with government. The key word there is submit. All right, Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, here's our key phrase, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, 
but also for the sake of his conscience. Okay, so let's see a few uh, facts from this passage. Number one, governments are given by God. They're instituted by God. They're appointed by God. They're even upheld by God. Uh, we need to accept that. It's sometimes a struggle for us because, you know, governments cause us some anger sometimes. We get frustrated with them. But God gave the government the power they have. Uh, just like the law of Moses came from God, our governments today come from God. Our governments may not know it. They may not believe it. But they are working on His behalf. The justice they give is flawed, but perhaps that's just to teach us to long for a perfect judge, to long for Jesus himself to return. Sometimes we struggle with this because we say our governments are corrupt or ineffective in giving justice. And that's a really fair concern. It's something that we need to pray about, we need to think about. But my answer is, you need to look at Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet who saw the sin in Israel, or Judah rather, excuse me, and said, God, what are you doing about this? And God said, don't worry, I'm bringing the Babylonians. And Habakkuk said, oh no, they're far worse than we are. And Habakkuk's you know, fear of that government, how, how can they be the ones inflicting judgment on us? You know what God's answer was? The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. And in essence, it's be quiet and trust me. I'm working. You need to see how I work. That's what God is doing. And we need that reminder sometimes. Even though governments are not always good, bad governments are not a new problem. They're as old as humanity. All the way back to the times before the flood where cities were there, where they, I'm sure, had governments of some kind over those cities, but they did nothing to stop the defining characteristic of the world being violence. Bad governments have existed for all time. And I know there are rare exceptions where people do not submit to the government in those bad government situations. But we need to be very careful because in each of these instances, I'm thinking of Moses and the Exodus, Daniel and his friends in Babylon, they didn't do the fighting themselves. They instead trusted God to do the fighting for them. They were willing to go into a fiery furnace or a lion's den or to go into certain death in Pharaoh's court and let God work there through them. So, governments are given by God, good or bad. So second, our role is to obey governments because they are given by God. That means we adhere to their matters of justice. Trusting God that the laws are adequate for His purposes is important for us to arrive at. Then we can obey them in submission to God. So this reminds us of the submission of our purpose, uh, the purpose of our submission so that we can stand out as God's people. You'll see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. Everyone around us may rage against the nations. They may be really angry about the justice that, or injustice that is happening around them, but we need to be very careful that we aren't raging against God himself. He very well could have appointed a King Saul over us that is judging us as we speak. We don't know what God's purposes are. We just know we need to submit because the governments are there for us to follow. And that includes trusting God in the most sobering part of government, and that's capital punishment, putting people to death for their crimes. God has a plan, and he will make it through. So that's, a, that's what we need to put here as our conclusion. We don't have to understand God's ways that he uses the government, but we just have to trust that he's in control. That's what we need to know about that. We don't do it gleefully, but we soberly trust God 
that he will bring justice. All right, that's our three questions this morning. Thank you for those who have sent those questions in. Our goal is to answer the questions you have, so maybe now that you've heard some questions sent in, that triggers your mind. Uh, Do it today while you have questions in your mind and send them so we can have those to work through. I prefer having them ahead of time so I can mull them over. It really helps. I will not answer a question if I get it the week of. I, I just, it's too, it'll get a mess. But, uh, so go ahead and send those questions to me. So if your question today that you sent in was not answered the way you were expecting it to be, uh, come talk to me and we can talk more. I'd be happy to keep learning with you. So let's pray for wisdom as we try to live according to the word of God. Uh, So we're going to stand and sing a song now uh, and give him the glory for what he does for us.